Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a restaurant guide powered by over 500 invited chefs, food writers and other trusted restaurant experts. With us today, we have a chef who has been voted the world's best female chef, starred in her own episode of Netflix Chef's Table series, and whose restaurant has been ranked among the best in the world. Welcome Chef Anna Ross from Hisha Franco, a restaurant nestled in a scenic green valley of the Slovenian mountains. For those who are new to her work, we asked Anna Ross to tell a bit about herself and her culinary journey. So, who is Anna Ross? Oh, who is Anna Ross? It's a good question. Um, she is a self-taught chef coming from Slovenia, from the western part of that small country, uh, I live on Italian border, and uh, I'm a head chef of uh, the restaurant called Hisha Franco. In my life I've had done a lot of things. Uh, I was almost a professional skier, a dancer, and then I graduated in diplomatic science, but actually decided um, to dedicate my life to the kitchen. But the center for all this uh, activity is your restaurant, uh, Hisha Franco which uh, is yeah. sort of a hidden place uh, up in a valley in the mountains. Uh, for somebody who hasn't been there, could you describe what that place is like? Well, Hija Franco is, uh, I would say, one of the restaurants that is very difficult to reach. Of course, it's difficult to reach Slovenia. We even lost our national airline a few years ago. And Ljubljana doesn't really have a lot of flights. You can still fly to Venice or uh, Trieste, which are super close, like an hour and a half. But it is also difficult to reach because there, there are mountain roads in the winter, snowing, ice. It's one of the places where you feel a little bit to be at the end of the world or the valleys are very low, the mountains around very high. Uh, the nature is spectacular. It's probably one of the greenest spots in the world with the rivers of the color of Maldives, uh, snowy peaks all, all, practically all year round. And we are also very close to the seaside. From the mountains, you can see the Gulf of Trieste, so the Mediterranean Sea. The air distance is probably 35 kilometers only. But I think um, this uh, picture of uh, almost a perfect Switzerland place or environment with having on the other side the seaside so close still doesn't overcome the fact that we live and I work in the environment that has no infrastructure for a good restaurant. So 20 years ago when I started, I needed to practically build up my own structure, which is still only my own structure, um, finding suppliers, producers, farmers, convince people to forage, convince people to have gardens, because I needed partners to work with. Hisha Franco is so far away from uh, bigger city centers um, that, and plus we are the only restaurant in a valley uh, that, let's say, um, has a focus on uh, um, on preserving traditions and, of course, cooking a great food. So the suppliers that are a part of my chain 
uh, actually um, having one partner only, and that is Hisha Franco. So that work is maybe something I'm the most proud about uh, because um, we needed a lot of time, often or sometimes, uh, to convince these uh, local farmers to, you know, start producing a bit more to share products um, with us. Mountain people are very unambitious, so they don't need, you know, an extra car or more money. And they are also, I think, self, self-esteem self is very low. So still today it happens like the guy I'm buying the uh, fermented cottages from, and uh, he's like, but the, I mean, this is such a simple food. What, what would you need that? You know, um, the understanding that we don't need foie gras or caviar or oysters uh, to make an amazing meal is not only a problem of people who don't understand that, but also of very small farmers who uh, don't estimate enough the size of the quality of the products uh, they are having. I think this is uh, a little bit the way we work and the way we are. If we look back and uh, take a fast recap of your career, you mentioned some of it, but the restaurants uh, rise and your rise to fame, one could say. How did that start and which were the the big uh, milestones on that journey to where you are now? Well, there is a lot of milestones. Maybe the first one was 2002 when I decided, so I already uh, graduated in the university, and uh, um, but I didn't take over the diplomatic career because I wanted to stay with Walter and they had, uh, at that time, Gustina Franco. So, but I didn't know how to cook, so and I was... You were you were married? No, no, we were never married. You were never, sorry. Yeah. We never married. And we we actually, uh, I helped managing the restaurant, uh, working most in the service, but I really didn't know how to cook. My life has been such a mess before, like being almost professionally into sports and dance and school, like it doesn't give you really time to cook with your, uh, with your parents um, or your grandparents. La nonna e la mamma. And then, uh, so 2002 uh, was first of the milestones when I decided that somebody needs to take care of the kitchen because what was missing the most was not so much hands, but a head, like someone who thinks um, on a long term, uh, you know, which is the direction the restaurant can go to. And so I simply opened the door, closed the door of the kitchen and I stayed. I was pregnant three months and I stayed until now. And that was probably the biggest milestone. Um, Probably the next one is uh, 2007, so just five years after I started, when um, I got the invitation to the first international conference, which was in Toulouse in southern France. It was called uh, Les Rencontres Internationales de la Gastronomie, and that was the second edition that was dedicated to the future stars of uh, the world cooking. And there was everyone, like Eric Ripper and uh, Mauro Colagreco and uh, Alex Atala and Mehmet Gürs and so many others. And I was, I mean, I just started cooking five years before. I was no one, I mean, for me, I was no one. But I never really, because I have a little bit low self-esteem, I'm also a, a mountain person. I never really understood that what was making me interesting and different was the fact that I was self-taught and I never really did not only gastronomic schools, 
but also um, I never did a stash, for instance. Um, so I was making my own interpretation of what I could find around me. And already at that time, when no one was talking about, you know, face on local, face on um, sustainability, face on seasonal, I was actually doing it because the conditions forced me to do it. Then probably the, the famous 2012, uh, where I did uh, as a first woman ever uh, the cookie throw, the environmental project with Andrea Petrini. So Andrea risked to invite a girl to the real men's club. Yeah, who I were, was there, I was there. <laughs> you see, <laughs> who, who was hunting and fishing and um, play, playing playing billiard and this was one of the most awkward moments because um, I remember I missed the flight because I honestly didn't go to sleep at all. I worked the whole night and then when I was packing I just fell on the bed and fell asleep. So I arrived like um, 15 hours too late, missed the press conference, missed the interviews. And I remember everybody was in the restaurant uh, eating like all these famous guys uh, with their assistants. And I walked in and of course I dressed wrongly. I had high heels and uh, a small black black dress. And I was like, I've seen the faces and they were like, who the hell is this one? And I felt like this throughout the whole cookie throw a little bit, you know, always put aside um, until the last dinner where I think um, I think they think I did my job well. So you did, you did, yeah. So for those, I mean, Cookie Draw was something that was a, how could you describe it? A symposium, a jam session for the most creative chefs in the world, like yeah. 10 or 15. Based on environmental yeah. topics. Yes. And uh, so this group went to some place in the world, cooked, hang out and had one dinner at the end. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, so I think like that was my visit card to the boys club. And that was a huge milestone because um, if before a lot of them thought like girls don't have space or maybe because I'm not saying you think girls don't have space. They never we never had a chance to prove that we can cook as well as they can. So I think the perception of a lot of them changed with that dinner because um, before they were looking at this blonde girl, instead of boots, I had high heels. Uh, actually, at the end, they've seen someone who knows how to use hands, who knows how to make interpretation of one environment. And I must say that I got not only place between them, but a kind of like always care when, I don't know, whenever, wherever we are together, somewhere still today or or something happens, they're always there for me. Uh, do you need help? And like, I became a kind of one of them. That was a huge one. And uh, of course, uh, um, the big milestone uh, uh, followed was a Netflix. We shooted Netflix on 2015, The Chef's Table. I was a part of uh, second season. Um, I think second episode of sex, second season, something like that. Uh, so... We could never measure the size of the chef's table because the first episode, so the first six uh, um, uh, movies just came out. So nobody could know what really happens to a restaurant after the um, the chef's table. So uh, 
my work has been pictured in the second one um, and uh, I first said no, actually didn't react on uh, on their email asking me if I want to shoot it. But then uh, Enrico Vignoli, the assistant of Massimo Bottura, was in the restaurant when the second email came and they attached me to Massimo's story and then I went to him and I was like, look, I mean, these Americans, they're trying to make me shoot something again and I'm sick of shooting because nothing changes for us. We still have low season, which is too long, uh, high season where we have to overwork because we need to survive financially um, uh, the year and I need to keep my people. And I was, that period, I was like, First in the kitchen, last to go, peeling potatoes, doing bread, um, washing the dishes, whatever was needed, plus two ch- growing children. And um, and I remember Enrico said, Anna, this is a huge thing, you have to do it. And he was like, please say yes. So I said yes, we started shooting a few months later and uh, the movie came out in on the 23rd of May 2016. I know that day precisely because our web page collapsed, our uh, reservation system broke down. Um, Hisha Franco from one day to the other became a restaurant that was known by foodies uh, to a restaurant that everybody knew about. The, I mean, imagine you're walking on the streets of New York, San Francisco or Melbourne and people are stopping you on the street because they recognize you from the chef's table. Or you go to Colombo and even people from Colombo know you. And um, it, it came as a big wave, um, not always the most pleasant, because of course I, was, I wasn't ready and the restaurant wasn't ready. So um, we needed quickly uh, to restructure the way we worked and the way I lived to somehow make it, make it happen. Um, and it's painful because there is always victims on the on the road when you have to quickly restructure something. So if I compare that in Hisha Franco in 2016 when Netflix came out, we were probably 10 people working there. Today Hisha Franco, we are 42 people working there. We needed a few years and a few victims, as I told you, uh, to make it happen. But today the structure is there. Even my life structure is a little bit better because when it all started, like I had a file of people in front of the kitchen door asking for the interviews, asking to do pictures, asking to do selfies, asking to talk to me and I had to peel potatoes. I mean, you can delegate someone to peel the potatoes and do your work because that's a part of the work. So, yeah, that's a huge milestone. And then the next one comes already the year after 2017. I was voted the best female chef on the world by uh, 50 best uh, list. And uh, also Hisha Franco made it for the first time uh, in the top 100 restaurants by the same list, place 69. And then with the following years, 2018, we already were top 50 where we stay uh, up to now. Is there more milestones? Uh, well, there is, uh, of course, you know, sometimes people say, uh, speak about Michelin stars. I would rather than say uh, that in 2020, when Michelin finally started the guide in Slovenia, we were awarded straight with two stars. I would rather say that I think one of the biggest work I did 
was to persuade the Slovenian Ministry of Economics and the Slovenian Tourist Board the importance of the gastronomy in tourism. At the beginning, that looked like a mission impossible because, uh, I mean, we are not... We have never been a food destination. We have never even been a tourist destination. We have never... Um, we lost a lot of traditions through the period of socialism. Basically, for Slovenia, food is a fuel and it's not an art. So, after Netflix, um, we started talking a little bit more seriously because since the Slovenian Tourist Board didn't react at that time, uh, what happened was, like, instead of having multiplicated the effect of the Netflix, so, because people were started flying from all around the world just to have food in Ija Franco. But then if that Australian you know, knew a little bit more about Slovenia, he would actually not go directly to Modena the day after, but he would probably make, you know, spend time and money in the country. But um, we seriously started talking when I became Best Female Chef. They understood that there is, my name is a brand, and it's good that if the whole country, like, steps together, uh, we can multiplicate the effect of my work. Um, so they started investing uh, into gastronomy, bringing in 2020 Michelin to Slovenia. And I think uh, that the fact that on the European Food Summit, which happened a few months ago, um, Slovenian Prime Minister, on my invitation, uh, came to listen to the last part of the conference in the most crisis times uh, that Europe is facing. Uh, but not only, I gently asked him to have a few words, closing words for the summit. And at the end, we were sitting together and he looked at me, he was like, you know what? I don't want to have a closing speech. I would like to have a dialogue with you on the stage. And whoever was listening to that um, didn't know that actually this was not planned. So I was like, are you joking? And he was like, no, I would like you to have a dialogue with me regarding the food and the future uh, on the stage. So we went there. Nobody knew. So when uh, the organizer looked to my eyes and he was like, is he going to have a final speech? I was like, come here. And I was like, no, he wants to have two seats there on a stage and having a dialogue about the future of the food. And that was probably one of the biggest awards I could get because somebody was listening. Somebody is listening and when the head of a state is thinking over what do we have to do, he was clear, lower the meat consumption, um, work locally, micro-locally, then it means we reached a lot because the future is probably brighter when the highest heads in the country realize that what we are talking is not just, you know, spending time, but it's thinking about the future of the new generations. If we go back to, to, to Gianfranco, the kitchen there and your food and the produce, uh, if you would have to mention two or three 
dishes that have been also maybe signature dishes and milestones in your creativity in the kitchen and the cooking? Which I know it's plenty of darlings there among them, but which ones would you uh, would you mention a few of them? I believe that the first milestone dish was um, the one that woke up the interest of the international journalists. Uh, it was discovered by uh, Gabriele Zanata, um, a journalist that works for Identità Golose. We remained friends since then. He once was passing by, not even knowing about the place. And I had on the menu, that I'm talking about 2005 or six. so I, I was just in the kitchen. And there was um, like tortellini filled with um, a filling uh, based on a liquid potato. Uh, and they were swimming in a trout broth and uh, um, clean, clean trout broth with steamed trout, trout eggs and wild chives. I mean, it's actually, now it makes me feel hungry, but I'm talking about really a cook or a chef who is a complete beginner. But technically, I actually made it happen. So when you put the, the that pasta in the mouth, it like just with a small pressure of the tongue, it exploded into the sweetest, creamiest mountain potato and then the trout brought in the steamed trout and the trout eggs that were pumping and but can you imagine like I'm still like emotional about that one mm. yeah. and uh, and I think that one was the one who brought the interest of people like wow look at her and look at her work uh, probably the dish that uh, I could say uh, was a new passage to something really interesting, was a squid that was, um, it's a dish which was out in, I would say, 2014, 15, or 13, 14, 15. It was a squid uh, from, um, uh, it's, it's the Adriatic one, so it's a little bit bigger and very, very sweet uh, and very crunchy. And it was filled with uh, lamb sweetbread and served in a, uh, in a, sauce made out of tulmin cheese which is re-fermented in the cave and then I did a reduction of all the interiors of the squids so when I cleaned them I didn't throw away anything and I cooked them down with some white wine into a very intense sauce completely black because the ink is also in but there were interiors and so on and that was the finishing part of the dish of course to now that's a milestone why because I was in a constant evolution. So I was in a learning process all the time. But that was a step into Anna was provoking with flavors and flavor combinations, hiding a little bit the fact that uh, she's maybe technically not as good as someone who did, I don't know, um, the best schools, the best stage was working with three or two Michelin star chefs and so on. So still so many people are talking about dish, the dish saying like, uh, but. Everything is good, but like that one. Um, and then, of course, there is then a new milestone uh, in in the evolution of Hisha, which is probably the menu of today, that is very difficult to point out something that is specifically significant. Um, maybe it is injera, because the, ring, the menu of 2021 and 22 is called reincarnation and uh, it's a post-covid menu which is uh, with techniques 
and super, super local product, making people fly around the world uh, as little Anna, who was discovering the world with his parents, using uh, techniques to reproduce um, some uh, um, some technical parts of the food that comes from either Mexico or Africa or Asia, Japan, but staying super local with product. So the main course is uh, very representing how I think about the food in this moment. Um, it is injera. Uh, you eat by hands, by the way, more than half of the menu is eaten by hands. But this injera, which is uh, uh, Ethiopian thousand whole bread, is actually um, remade with our flowers. So there's a roasted um, barley flour and barley malt. Uh, the fermentation is therefore a little bit longer to get the bubbles and the sourness. And uh, it is served with a sauce uh, that is uh, cooked down out of all of the trimmings of the meat that remain uh, in uh, previous preparations. So from lamb to game to bear to chicken to veal, um, all trimmings. What we usually don't know what to do with. Brought together herbs from the garden, cooked down for three days. And there is the onion, uh, which is a queen of the sauces, which is roasted. And beside a small wrap, depending on a season, um, in the autumn, it was a wrap of 16 different varieties of mushrooms and a celeriac leaf. And uh, why I'm talking about this dish? Because it's a complete no-waste dish. It means like, uh, instead of thinking over a great piece of meat, we are thinking about giving meat through an extraction of the trimmings. And, uh, and the philosophy of uh, not using fork and knife but eating with hands uh, is something that I believe it brings you to primordial feelings of eating. And of course, reproducing injera, which I first met when I was a child, but making it a Slovenian injera is uh, showcasing like a big uh, mastership of the techniques. Um, I was working on that one with the, our baker and maybe also the proof how important it is, you know, to delegate the work in the kitchens because the chef is one and one only. And I truly believe that the chef is the one who needs to be signed under every single dish that is a part of his menu. That is... Our legacy, that is our obligation. But then you have so many great people to experiment with, to cook with, uh, to give them a platform. They can have even an opinion about uh, something that could be transformed in a better way. And this is a showcase in Hisha Franco that, you know, trusting also your team around you can bring you far away. It's a beautiful, beautiful dish. And actually the injera uh, has a very... Authentic flavor, but as you said, it's it's local grains and not yeah. the teff that they use in, in Ethiopia. Exactly. As you are a traveler and you have a long... It's an important influence for you traveling in for your work and for your spare time and uh, yeah, getting away and getting influences. When it comes to restaurants and eating out in the world, what's your attitude towards when you travel, eating out, eating in new places and so? What are you looking for? Uh, that's fun. I think I look for authentic. So authentic can be found usually in uh, the worst looking places, but the food can like uh, kick your ass. Um, it's where I learn the most. 
I'm not gonna I'm not going to find any restaurants to learn because that is expression of a chef and I am the first one to sign a petition that copy pasting in the kitchen should be prohibited and forbidden. And it's it's unfortunately due to social media impossible to, to stop that. So I think the learning process starts really in understanding flavors and ingredients in very, very simple places. If you want in Asia on the streets, in Africa on the streets, in Italy, in Osterias, um, and it's where I really enjoy the most. But then you also have fine dining restaurants that uh, highly speak about, you know, uh, the legacies, the future, the ingredients, um, and of course, uh, when I say the future, it means they are showcasing great, great skills in remaining local by use of ingredients and sometimes even flavor, but like uh, bringing it to another level. I still am of the opinion that um, the world should be moving into this direction. And these are sometimes not really the trendiest or the most famous restaurants from different lists, from Michelin lists, but it could be like some hidden one-star restaurant in a place that you don't even expect. So, for instance, one of those huge surprises for me, a place I will always go back, even if I hate the place, is uh, Chef Himanshu in Dubai, Tresin Studio. I mean, uh, I had no expectations. Um, and I don't like Dubai, and I decided to cook a dinner with him during pandemic because first I wanted to cook, and we couldn't cook in Europe, and second is because I'm always curious to understand young people and see where they can bring you, because they are the future. His cooking one of, was one of the highest surprises in my life, and I went back this a- April, and I have to say that It was probably one of the top three dinners I had in my life. If you would have to mention a few things that you have had in the last few years, something great in some restaurants, it can be any simple street food or bakery or or, or so. Look, um, of course, we are automatically a little bit more connected with Italy because I live on Italian border. So um, let's say I had an incredible experience with Chef Mauro Liassi because he actually transformed into from, let's say, a classical um, chef who was playing on a safe side uh, to something extraordinary with the flavors that are so pushed that sometimes I wasn't able even to to finish it because um, it was such a strong emotion. And I, when I went out, I just was like, I ate his food two times before and then this transformation happens at the age of 60. So it means, Jesus Christ, you can still... You, you can still do so many things. Um, I mean, there is so much time in life. You know, getting old or older is a fact. But it all depends on you, on your head, on your mindset. I mean, there is, uh, there is this great small restaurant in Rome called Zia, uh, who cooks like a food that is mind-blowing. And not really a lot of people know about him. There is, of course, as I mentioned before, Chef Himanshu, who is another like 
surprise such a young man with uh, um, living in a difficult environment because he's an Indian uh, who works in Dubai and in Dubai the perception of Indian cuisine is, you know, very low. Um, uh, of course, and always one of my favorites on my list is always a big surprise at Noma in Copenhagen. Like, uh, Noma is always a lesson. It's uh, a lesson about even your own stupidity, how you sometimes don't see the general picture. Um, it's a lesson about, you know, to take care of the team. Um, and I'm really taking care, but I always learn a little bit more, you know, how many more things I could do, you know, to make um, to make life to your team easier, because that's our life. At the end, uh, if you want to keep on doing our work for a long time, we need to, uh, you know, make our working conditions sustainable. Otherwise, you can be a chef up to the age of 30, and then what then? I mean, then I become a mechanic because I cannot do it anymore. Or like, you know, sitting on the lake of uh, Lago di Garda and uh, that fantastic hospitality and the geniusness of cooking of uh, Riccardo Camanini and his brother. I actually got engaged in uh, Lido 34, so, okay. yeah, because my future husband knew exactly that that is, uh, that is a place I'm so much in love with. And... Uh, so there is the Toretta and the Champagne and that amazing people and then knowing that you have this incredible food. So when we talk about the restaurant, you see, you don't even talk, you don't talk so much about one single dish. You can even have an incredible food, but if not, everything is matching. Like for me, it's a curiosity why some decisions, uh, of course, the humbleness of the chef counts so much. Um, the service and then the philosophy we are all talking about so much. And the philosophy of the restaurant is the one which defines it. Mm. So that's why copy-paste should be prohibited and forbidden. The last question um, I would ask you, if uh, somebody comes to, to Slovenia, say for the first time, uh, and will not eat or will eat at uh, at Hisha Franco, but would go to if you would pick one other uh, meal uh, in any place in Slovenia, where would you send uh, that person? If you are looking for, um, let's call it a fine dining experience, I would absolutely say um, Luca Kosir from the restaurant Gritch, straightforward, having working with farms, uh, having his own farm, uh, having his own ducks, uh, a little bit Scandinavia inspired, but very true to himself. Very good sommelier, very good wine card. Um, absolutely a place to travel to. But then Slovenia is mostly, I would say, about uh, uh, like simpler food, which can be really incredible if you know the place. It's like eating prosciutto or yota on the karst. Uh, you have some incredible places to to do it uh, or to eat it. Um, or uh, like there is a place in central Slovenia when you can go for an incredible game, uh, game meal with a bear as a main course. I just had like a few days ago an incredible, um, it's very simple fish dinner. You know, Slovenia is about mountain and the sea. We are, everything is closed and everything is interconnected. And I was like, wow, it's a long time. I didn't have such an incredible um, raw fish, such a good quality. The guy's having his own fisherman. 
So what maybe needs to happen in Slovenia is that someone serious come, and this cannot be the Michelin. It needs to be someone who lives there to make a map of what is really good in Slovenia. Nevertheless, that is a fine dining restaurant where we go sometimes, but where do we usually eat is actually simple places where we can feed ourselves on a daily basis. Yeah, and there is still a lot to be done in Ljubljana, believe me. Ljubljana still uh, uh, has a lot of potential and uh, the, I think the city would need to have a lot more from what is having in this moment. Yeah, okay. Very good. Uh, Anna Ross, thank you so much for this and uh, good luck with uh, all your endeavors and your future projects. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the World of Mouth podcast with Anna Ross, the chef of Restaurant Hija Franco in Kobarid, Slovenia. Find all of Anna Ross' recommendations mentioned in this episode and more on the World of Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at worldofmouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars. Until next week, when we talk with chef Christian Puglisi in Copenhagen. <laughs>